All right. Well, again, welcome to Hope Lower Town. And uh, if you're just checking out Hope, uh, welcome. You're checking out Christianity. Welcome. Glad you are here. Um, this is kind of a, a good week uh, to be uh, checking out uh, Hope and uh, an interesting week because we just ended a series, a uh, summer series that we called uh, <laughs> Not Just Another Story, a blank there. We did that for 11 weeks. We kind of took uh, the summer off, if you will, from Romans. And so we did 20 weeks of Romans uh, in the spring, and we took the summer off and did this other series. And now we are kicking back off in Romans. And so um, this week, though, is just going to kind of be a recap. Where, where have we been? And so uh, normally, and, and next week, and the week after that, and the week after that, and every other week, now we're going to look at a, a short, small, little passage of Scripture, and we're going to walk through it word by word, line by line. We, we really like to just take our time in a text, especially uh, with a book like Romans. And uh, so we're going to be in here for a while. Uh, we'll probably get here probably at least another year, uh, probably the end of 24. Uh, but that's where we'll, we'll take a break for Christmas, of course. And then we'll take a break next summer as well. Um, and that's where we're going to be. So this is the, technically week 21 of the series in Romans. But uh, again, we're just going to do a little recap here. We're not going to be jumping into Romans chapter 4. We'll start that, we'll start that next week. So uh, when I, I was not a math guy. Uh, math was not my thing. Uh, when I went to college, I literally took a class called college math, um, which means you don't know anything. And somehow you made it into college and this is your math class. And even, uh, and for me, that class was, was pretty easy. I don't know why it was taught in college. Like I, it doesn't make any sense, but I remember throwing a party for myself after I turned in the last paper, took the last test, I was done, like done with math. And now I've got a six-year-old uh, who falls, uh, helps himself fall asleep by doing math problems in his head. I don't know where that came from. Uh, not me. Never once did I, instead of counting sheep, do math in my head. Nope, not a thing. I, I bring all that up because today I want to kind of recap Romans 1 through 3 and, and try to look at the question or what the Apostle Paul is saying, X equals five, all right? And what is X? What is the gospel? And so I wanna check his, his work. We're gonna look at it today. Okay, here's what the gospel is according to Romans chapter one through three. And then next week and the week after that, the next two weeks, we're gonna go back to the Old Testament and say, okay, does the math check out? Uh, we're going back to the storyline of the Old Testament, which is what the apostle is gonna do. He's gonna look at King David and then Abraham and say, okay, now let's go back. Is the gospel present even in the Old Testament that screams this is all about Jesus? All right, so that's what we're going to be doing the next couple of weeks. So this week, just where we've been simply, um, and th this is kind of a hard, you know, and you think like, oh yeah, you've got Romans 1 through 3. Go ahead, preach it, teach it. And it's like, man, this is, this is actually kind of a hard thing because it's such a, raw, a big thing. And, and we're recapping, there's not like this one big takeaway uh, that we're going to have this morning like we typically do. There's one uh, thing that we will uh, really look at, uh, probably even more so than we normally do with the language. But um, anyways, let's just, let's just get going. So I want to do kind of a 30,000 30, foot recap of Romans so far. And I want to look at the thesis statement of the book. The Apostle Paul is going to slam his readers in the face in Romans chapter 1, um, 16 through 17. I'll have all the, all the words up on the screen here. This is going to be the ESV. Typically read from the NIV, but just going as uh, slowly as we've been going, the ESV is just a little bit more uh, literal in their translation. And so it's been a good translation for us in Romans. And so this is Romans chapter 1, 16 through 17. This is the X, right? This is the X equals five. The gospel here, this is it as, as blatant as we could get it in this thesis statement from the Apostle Paul in all of Romans. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Okay, well, well what is the gospel? What is the good news? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew, first to the Jew, and then to the Gentile, which he's gonna break down in chapters two and three. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. This right standing that God demands is revealed in the good news that is in Jesus Christ, which he's gonna explain, a righteousness by, by works, by being a good person, by doing right, do it, whatever, to be better than the person next to you. A righteousness that is by faith from the first 
to last, the righteousness that is by faith from the beginning to the end. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And again, if, if, if at any point, any of this, like, oh man, that's, I'm kind of curious. I'd like to get a little deeper into that. Go back online. Uh, and you can, you actually have an option of three sermons uh, from Hope Lower Town, Hope Downtown, and Hope Columbia Heights, where you could, you could get a whole lot of information uh, just from our church right on this passage. But this is going to be it. The gospel equal to X, right? The gospel is the power of God, the righteousness of God, given by faith and only by faith. And again, we're going to check this work next week. And again, uh, if you were here in the, in the spring, we kind of got sick of probably me asking this question. The big question, how can a just God allow anyone into his presence, right? That, that's the question the Apostle Paul is asking. A, lot, a big question that every person should wrestle, wrestle through is how can a loving God allow anyone into hell? That's a great question. That's not what the Apostle Paul is asking. The apostle Paul is saying, everyone should be going to hell. How is it even possible that God could allow anyone into his presence, Jew or Gentile? It doesn't make any sense. So he's working it out. That's the big, that's the big question that he's going to be uh, trying to answer. And how can anyone ever be good enough to stand before a holy God, a sinless, pure God? How could a sinner like me be in his presence? How, does, how can God get away with that? Well, that's what Paul is going to be getting at. So we look at chapter one. In chapter one, the apostle Paul is writing to the churches in Rome. These little house churches spread out throughout Rome uh, that, that the apostle Paul didn't plant, that none of the apostles planted. Um, and, and specifically, all the people, including Gentiles, are without excuse. Jews and Gentiles, without excuse, meaning they're not good enough and they can never be good enough. How could they ever be good enough in this holy God? They don't have an excuse. Now, context here a little bit more, um, uh, right? And even the Gentiles, excuse me, are without excuse, even though they don't have the Bible or the scriptures, the Old Testament. God didn't reveal himself to the Gentiles, meaning all other nations, every other nation. You have the Israelites, then you have all the other Gentiles, all other ethne all the Gentiles. They're without excuse, even though they didn't, even though God didn't explicitly reveal himself in the word uh, to them. They're without excuse, which he's going to explain. Now, again, a little bit of context here. The Emperor Claudius, if you remember, he kicked out all the Jews. And so we, we went, we're not going to get into it this morning, but had a lot of um, extra biblical texts and proof of, of historians saying, yeah, the Jews were expelled from Rome. And that would have included then Jewish Christians that would have been in Rome. They got kicked out of Rome. And, well, guess what? They would have been, these would have been individuals that would have been at Pentecost at the time. They would have heard the, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They would have gone back to Rome. And then, but also then these, these churches though that were established, now all of a sudden the Jewish leaders that, were, that have started these churches are now coming back. And so there's some tension here between all the other ethnicities and the Jews that were, that were in these local churches. So now these, this leadership is coming coming back. But this chapter one specifically, he's going to be addressing the Gentiles. He's going to be addressing all other ethnicities. And he says this in chapter one, verses 18 through 23. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, by who their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they, came, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things." And kind of the obligatory C.S. Lewis quote, when you start talking about humanity choosing the creation over the creator, says that it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. God shows up and he says, I'm on display. 
I'm in display in creation and, and the world as we know it. It's these, the beauty that we can see all around us. I'm here, I'm there. You know I'm there, but you say, no, I don't want that. And matter of fact, I'd rather worship the things of this world rather than you. That's all of humanity. He says, so the Gentiles, all other ethnicities, even though I haven't explicitly revealed myself, I didn't show up on the mountain and give them the law of how to love, love me and to serve me and the sacrificials. I didn't give them any of that, but they're still without excuse, the apostle Paul says. That's chapter one. Chapter two, he's gonna say, but so are the Jews. So are the Israelites, the ones who have been blessed with the Bible, the ones who have been blessed with my laws. They're also without excuse. And you're gonna see in chapter two, his, his pronouns change from they, them, uh, uh, talking about they, the Gentiles, because the apostle Paul is a Jewish Christian, to, that, to now you, right? There's, there's a change now. I'm talking to the Jewish believers in Rome. He says, therefore you, Jewish believers, have no excuse. Oh man, every one of you who judges for in passing judgment and another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So he's saying, we're condemned. We're all condemned. We're all equal at the foot of the cross that, and that we have no hope. We have no chance. How can a just God allow us into heaven? Because we're all sinners. Well, then he gets then into the gospel very explicitly in chapter three only by faith. He says, but now, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you grew up religious or irreligious, listen, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. All right, again, that's how he's gonna check his work next week. Hey, let's look at the law and the prophets. How do we, how does it scream Jesus. They bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Justified, made right. In a right standing. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Not by my works, not by anything I've done, not by being a good person not by being a better person than that person, not by being a better dad than my dad, not by, not by any of that. I'm justified by his grace as a gift of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Um, oh, let me keep reading here. <laughs> Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, right? Again, how can a just God allow anyone in his presence? Because there's a payment that must be made. And that payment is perfection. And we fell short. Nobody could do it. Jesus, though, it's his blood, not by the blood of a lamb or a goat or a bull. It's his blood, which we remember every week here at Lower Town in the, in the communion elements of remembering his body, remembering his blood, the new covenant in his blood, that he was the payment to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. And these, all these sins for, forever leading up to the cross, they were passed over. The blood of a bull can't wash away the sins of anybody. It had to be Jesus. It had to be God himself. It was to show his righteousness at the present times that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How can God allow anyone into his presence? By becoming himself the sacrifice that is worthy of the payment. He had to do it. Now, the other night, uh, a while ago, I may have mentioned this before, I don't know, there's a, there's a little, little tiny booklet called um, The Gospel Primer. It's a little tiny book, and, and my wife and I used to be in the habit of just reading one of these little, just little proverbs, little paragraphs. And we'd read them, and, and uh, they're just great, just really encouraging. And we kind of got out of the habit of doing that, and so I, I recently bought it, and we're trying to get back in the habit, and by that, I mean we did it one night. <laughs> so we're, we're, just, we're just getting started. But the first one, the first entry in that book of the gospel primer, he uses this passage in Romans to say, we all need the gospel. Again, we talk with this language we use here at Lower Town a lot, that there's the gospel as a door, right? I go from death to life, darkness to light. I pass from a non-believer through the door to believer. That's great. But the gospel, this gospel that Paul is outlining here is for every moment and life and decision. It's a path that we walk on. 
It's not just from uh, get out of hell free card. That's not what the gospel is. Because why? The apostle Paul is writing in a very explicit gospel message to people who already believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's writing it to the church. All of us, they're called epistles. These letters to churches are so explicit in the gospel. We need the gospel. We need to teach the gospel and preach the gospel to ourselves. And as Martin Luther says, we gotta continually beat the gospel into our heads because we are so prone to wander. We are so prone to forget the simple truth. And we so are so prone to think, I can do it. I am better than that person. A little further down here in Romans 3, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded by what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, right? Because he just gets done saying, hey, Gentiles need Jesus. Hey, guess what? So do the Jews, but the Jews had the law. But guess what? We all fell short of the law. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? The religious, the irreligious. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means, on the contrary, we uphold the law. And the last time we preached in Romans ended with that phrase, we uphold the law. What, do, what does he mean? We're not gonna get into that today. That's gonna be answered again in the next couple of weeks of what is this law and how do we uphold the law? R.C. Sproul um, in his commentary in Romans says this, Christianity is faith that transcends all national, cultural, and racial distinctions. Neither is it time bound to a particular period in history. Rather, Paul boldly professes that it is a universal faith. This may not strike us today as particularly profound truth, but to the ears of a first century Jew, this would have been shocking. Charles Hodge comments on Paul's words by saying, we Gentiles may now look up to heaven and confidently say, thou art our father though Abraham be ignorant of us and though Israel acknowledge us not. We are all equal at the foot of the cross and Jesus dies for all people. I wanna do something, I think I've got time. I was a little hesitant to do this, but I, I wanna read that passage, okay? And, I, and it's a long, I wanna read Romans 1, 2, and 3. I've never done this before and maybe I'll never do it again, but I wanna read this, okay, because this is how they would have done it. Uh, that they would have sat around, they would have gotten a letter from Paul from the Rome, to the Romans. They would have gotten, I don't know if it was called Romans. You're like, I don't know. Whatever the address was, that they would have gotten a scroll, they would have gotten some kind of writing and they would have sat around and they would have read it. Now we have to explain a little bit of context of, okay, who are the they in chapter one? Okay, that's all other nations. Again, Gentiles would have been present just like it is today. Chapter two would have been shifting then to the you, to now it's, now it's the Israelites, now it's the Jews. Okay, so we are, we're also without excuse. And then chapter three, man, here's the gospel. Let me lay it on you. There's no ifs, doubts, or buts. It is about Jesus and Jesus alone. So I'm just gonna read this and it shouldn't take too long. Maybe, I don't know, we'll see how fast I read. But this is how they would have done it, right? Again, we, we do this a lot of times at, at Hope or just maybe evangelicalism in general that we, we focus in, right? And, and Luther talked about this a lot. We get so focused on a leaf of a tree that we forget to look at the whole tree and we forget to look at the whole forest the tree is in. And I think that when you read it all in one time, it just gives us a little bit more context, a little more understanding of some of these verses. So Romans chapter one through three, um, this is the Holman Christian standard uh, that I'm reading out of. A lot of, a lot of translations there. All right, Romans chapter one. I'm just gonna read it straight through. Nope. No comments. Don't make any comments, Brian. Don't do it. Just read it. It says this, Paul, a slave to Christ Jesus, called an apostle and singled out for the good news, which he promised long ago through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and who has been declared to be the powerful son of God by the resurrection of the dead according to the spirit of holiness. We have received an apostleship through him, bringing about the obedience of faith among all the nations on behalf of his name, including yourselves, who also belong to Jesus Christ by calling to all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God 
through Jesus Christ for all of you because the good news of your faith being reported to all the world. For God, whom I serve with my spirit and telling the good news about his son is my witness that I constantly mention you. Always asking in my prayers that if it's somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you for I want very much to see you. So I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you, but was prevented until now in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and foolish. So I'm eager to preach the good news to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God and they did not glorify him as God or showed gratitude, instead in their thinking, they became nonsense and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over to the cravings of their hearts, to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served something created rather than the creator who is praised forever, amen. This is why God delivered them over to their deranged passions. For even their females exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The males the same way also left natural relations with females and were inflamed in their lusts for one another. Males committed shameless acts with males and received their own persons, the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a worthless mind to do what is morally wrong. They're filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They're full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, and unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know full well God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they even applaud others who practice them. Therefore, if any one of you who judges without excuse, for when you judge another, you condemn yourself since you, the judge, do the same things. We know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based in truth. Do you really think any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognize that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your hardness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment is revealed, he will repay each one according to his works, eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and indignation for those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth, but are obeying unrighteousness. Affliction and distress for every human being who does evil first to the Jew and also to the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good first to the Jew and also to the Greek. There is no favoritism with God. All those who sin without the law will also perish without the law. And all those who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be declared righteous. So when Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively do what the law demands, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They showed the work of the law was written on their hearts. Their conscience confirmed this. Their compelling thoughts will either accuse or excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept in secret, according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and rest in the law, boast in God. 
know his will, and approve the things that are superior being instructed from the law. And if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having a full expression of knowledge and truth in the law, then you who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal. Do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob their temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision benefits you if you observe the whole law. But if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, was uncircumcision not be counted as circumcision? A man who is physically uncircumcised, but who fulfills the law, will judge you who are a lawbreaker, in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly. The true circumcision is not something visible on the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. That man's praise is not from men, but from God. So what advantage does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Considerable in every way. First, they were entrusted with the spoken words of God. What then? If some did not believe, will their unbelief cancel God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. God must be true, even if everyone is a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your, wor- in your words and triumph when you judge. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I use a human argument. It is God's unrighteousness. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie, God's truth is amplified to his glory, why am I still judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people slanderously claim we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. Their condemnation is deserved. What then? Are we any better? Not at all. For we have previously charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands God. There is no one who seeks after God. All have turned away and alike have become useless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Viper's venom is under the lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths, and their path to peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever law, the law speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to his judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. But now, apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. That is God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, since there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as a propitiation through faith in his blood to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over sins previously committed. God presented him. Jesus, to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous and declare righteous the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No, on the contrary, by law of faith. For we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not also for the Gentiles? Yes, for the Gentiles too. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then cancel the law through faith? Absolutely not. On the contrary, we uphold the law. All right, thanks for listening. I know that was a lot. Uh, We're going to do the whole book when we get to the end. No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) I just wanted to help get that in context, right? Because again, we just get so, we we, we take verse by verse by verse and we kind of lose lose the whole picture, the big scheme of what he's doing. I think when you read it in one sitting, you, you hear it a little more clearly. Wow, Jew and Gentile, wow, we can't do it only through Jesus. So um, uh, this is totally kind of shifting gears here. Um, but I, I got a question in an email form. And so I want to take some time and answer that. And then we'll be finished once we kind of talk about this. So one of the one, a neat question I got um, 
was uh, one of the main things I've been confused about in this series so far is the idea of big L law and little L law. And they go on to explain that um, uh, just, the, just the language is, is he just kind of nonchalantly using the same word. So we're going to get into what that means. He's actually being very chalant uh, in his usage of the word law. I actually looked that up. That's a word. Because uh, I was like nonchalant. Can I be chalant? Yeah, you can. Uh, that is a thing. Um, so, okay, uh, let, me, let me look at uh, first before we get into, in, because we're going to address this, but, but th- this is a very complicated question. And I know that the guy who wrote this, or gal who wrote this, uh, knows that, that this is uh, very controversial, even within the book of Romans, uh, that you can look at uh, the, the way it's translated law, even in our translations, when you look at it in your English translation, most often you're going to see it translated with a capital L law, but every once in a while you'll see a little L law. Well, why is that? Okay, let's get into that. The law in the scriptures are not super straightforward. Um, what does it mean? Uh, we just read, there's the law, the, 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 the law of Moses that the Israelites had, but then the, the law written on people's hearts. But what is that all about? Okay, so, so the word law can be uh, different depending on the context. Um, even though it might be the same word used. So there's seven purposes of the law, if I will, that I'll, I'll just kind of go through these. We'll look at them. And so if you're taking notes, if you got your little Romans uh, Bible that we gave everyone, and if you need one of those, let me know. I can get you another one. We got a few other ones. It's just Romans on one side and blank side for notes if you're interested in that. One of the purposes of the law is a national charter for the people of Israel to be set apart. Food laws, Sabbath keeping, how to grow crops, et cetera, right? This is what we would think in our minds, the law of Moses, right? Like the the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, these laws, right? All these laws, the the 10 commandments, all these different things. Now, I don't want to get too far into this, but sometimes people will take this idea of the law, Mosaic law, R.C. Sproul, right? My, My boy, he did this. I totally disagree with him on this is that he talks about what's called the threefold use of the law. In other words, that you can take the Old Testament and some of the laws and you can break them down into three different categories, civil, ceremonial, and moral, right? There's these three kind of laws. And so we would say, well, a civil law would be don't steal. Okay, that's a civil law, right? It's, it's, a, it's something from, from me and my, my friend or my neighbor, don't, don't steal. There's something that's happening there. Um, and then they would say there's ceremonial, right? Remember the Sabbath day or, or the, the tabernacle of the, the, uh, the day of booths where they would celebrate what it was to be out in the wilderness, all these different things. Okay, well, that's ceremonial, but then there were moral laws. And so Sproul and a lot of others, uh, I think uh, Calvin was in this, in this group as well. They'd say, we don't, we don't need to obey the civil and the ceremonial laws, but we do need to still obey the moral laws behind all these laws. That sounds great, right? And I think mentally uh, it's helpful to categorize it in that way. The problem is if you were an Israelite, all of the laws were moral. (laughs) They all were moral. If I didn't remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, I was sinning. That's moral. If I say, well, thou shalt not steal, well, that's civil, but that's also very moral. Okay, so it's really hard to try to break them down in these neat little categories between civil, ceremonial, and moral because they were all moral uh, in some way, shape, or form. But this first purpose of the law, national charter, uh, is clearly seen in Deuteronomy 4, 8. It says, and what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws that I am setting before you today. The second one is, as a means to obtain slash maintain the Abrahamic promise of land, blessing, and life. Again, in Genesis chapter 12 and 15, God uh, makes, Yahweh makes this covenant with Abraham and he promises land and prosperity as a nation and and a people and, and blessing. And he says, if you obey these laws, you will be blessed and all the nations will be blessed through you. If you don't obey these commands, you're gonna be cursed. Deuteronomy 28, one through three, if you fully obey the Lord, your God, and carefully follow all of his commands I have given you today, the Lord, your God, will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come to you and accompany you if you obey the Lord, your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The third purpose of the law is to clearly define sin. 
Romans 3, 20, just read this. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous, made right in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. The law points things out, right? There's a speed limit, uh, 55 right here when you get on 35E. And if you get pulled over by a state trooper, most likely the first thing he's going to say is, do you know how fast you're going? You become conscious of your sin, conscious of your sin, when you say, you see the sign, there's a law, 55. I know it's 55. I'm going 65. All right, eight, eight, uh, you're fine. Nine's a crime. That's how I justify going eight over. Um, and <laughs> I don't know if it's not true. I don't know, but, I, but it's worked for me so far. Uh, so that's the law, right? You're, you, becomes a, you become aware of it through, through the law. You become conscious of sin when the law is there. Number four, to show you the ways of God. Psalm 19, seven through nine. Listen how, again, we think the law, this is the, this is, this is the law, the law of Moses. We think of this as like restrictive. Oh my goodness, oppressive. Listen how King David talks about this law. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. Right? It not only shows us the ways of God, but these laws that God gives his people teach us about who God is, about who he is as a God to his people. It's the same for us as, as, as kids. We all had parents in some way, shape, or form, a guardian growing up, right? And, and, and when, we, when there's rules certain people had, friends, neighbors, uh, classmates, yourself, you might have had certain rules or laws, right? And so growing up, if I met a kid and they were like not ever allowed to have sugar, it said something about their parents. And I don't know what it says about their parents one way or the other, right? But it teaches you something about the parents by the laws that they have. It's the same for us. We say that God loves all people. That he loves life. Taking care of the innocent and the widow. We learn so much about the foreigner, the traveler, and the alien, the poor and the hungry. We learn God's character by his law. The fifth one, which might sound odd, is to increase sin. We'll be here in just a couple of weeks. But very explicitly, the law was brought in so that the trespass, sin, might increase. And Paul is going to say, though, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. We'll get to that in a couple of weeks. Number six, to point us to Christ in regard to our need of salvation. Galatians 3, 21 is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if the law had been given that could impart life, the righteousness would have certainly come by the law. If the law could save you, then Jesus dies in vain. The law just says we need something else. But scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe, and then finally to foreshadow Christ with regard to the temple sacrifices. So foreshadow that these, these sacrifices would never work. And we could easily read all of Hebrews chapter 10. I'm just going to read verses one and two. It says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. I know I've shared this a million times, maybe not a million, maybe two, <laughs> um, uh, but we, in, my, in my living room, if you've been there, we have these pictures, three pictures, one of, of Big Ben, uh, one of the Coliseum, and one of the Eiffel Tower. I love those pictures. My wife took those pictures. We went to Europe uh, seven years ago, we, and we, we love those pictures. But you know what's greater than the pictures? The actual places, right? When, when you go to the place, this thing is good, but it's a shadow of the good thing that's really coming. Marriage is an example. It's a shadow of the true marriage of the, of the Supper of the Lamb and his bride. They're not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? If the blood of a bull could take away the sin, then they would have killed a bull and that would have been it. But it didn't work that way. If the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all, would no longer have felt guilty for their sin. And the author of Hebrews says, but Jesus, 
the lamb that takes away the sin of the world is sacrificed once and he sits down at the right hand of God. And we remember the perfect finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We don't, we don't eat Jesus every week. I'm not trying to be facetious and, and, and make fun of other, other belief systems. But he finished that work. Sacrifice, once, done, for all. Now, that did not answer this question. Okay, so I just wanted to give a little bit of background. Okay, now let's get into this a little bit more. And we, I never have done this. So, so <laughs> we're, we're going to, okay? Uh, we're gonna get into language a little bit here, okay? So I took a screenshot. This is just of our Bible software that I use, Logos. I, I do not wanna get too, too heady on this, okay? But to, to the individual who wrote the question, he's got a really good point because the word in the Greek, Koine Greek, common man's Greek, if you know Greek, you're not special. You know, you know, you, you know common Greek, okay? You're not cool. Um, the, the word here, namas, is, is the word where we get law, okay? And, 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 and so it just translated law. Now, in this translation, which uh, is the, the NASB, here we are. Well, look at us. Look at us using all these translations today. Uh, that we have uh, namas, which is law. And so when you click on it, Right? It, show, it highlights, and it's really hard to see. It's that kind of that faint purple here. And you can see all of these are capital L law. All right? So these, this capital L law, and what the NASB does, which a lot of other translations do as well, is they're going to use, and they're going to put in a little uh, predicate, a little, the, the word the, all right? And they're going to say it's the law, okay? The law of Moses. And so when with our modern translations, when they capitalize the L and put the word the before it, you can just read it. And actually sometimes, and, and some translate, or actually in the Greek, sometimes that word, the law of Moses or Torah is actually the word that they're using. But most of the time it's this word nomos, namas, okay, law. So you can translate this and read this, the works of the law of Moses, okay? We, we can read it that way. So the question then is saying, the apostle Paul is using the same word, law, nomos, everywhere in this entire book. How in the world can we say big L law and little L law? It's a great question, okay? So, so these, these three examples right here, this is, I don't have the, this is Romans chapter one, uh, verse 28. For we maintain that man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law of Moses. Right? Do we nullify then the law? Oh, sorry, this is the end of chapter three. Uh, do we nullify the law of Moses through faith? It says, may it never be. Like, like that's like a powerful moiganito. If we're in the Greek, might as well get it. This is power, like God forbid. On the contrary, we establish, and then the NASB here is gonna translate that the capital L law, the Holman that I just read is actually little law. Well, which is it? Well, now we've got, another year and a half to talk about it. But we establish, we establish the law of Moses. What does he mean by that? And I think the NASB's probably got that right here, but we'll get into that next couple of weeks. Again, uh, this is uh, chapter two. He says here again, we have all these uh, capital L laws, right? For those who have sinned without the law of Moses also perish without the law of Moses. All who have sinned under the law of Moses will be judged by the law of Moses. For it is not the hearers of the law of Moses who are just before God, but the doers of the law of Moses will be justified. The Gentiles do not have the law of Moses and they do instinctively the things of the law of Moses. Okay, so he's saying Gentiles, all the other nations didn't get the law of Moses, but they instinctively do the things written in them. They know deep in their heart that murder is not good. When Cain kills his brother Abel, he knew it was wrong. When Adam and Eve choose the sin and they eat of that fruit, what do they do? They go and they hide, right? Instinctively, the things of the law of Moses, these not having the law of Moses are a law of Moses to themselves, right? So that, that's where things get a little tricky. Right? They are a law unto themselves. It's kind of even a phrase that we still use in our culture, right? Meaning they just kind of do whatever they want to do, right? I don't have the law of Moses. So the law of Moses isn't going to tell me what to do. I'm going to tell me what to do. But even by my, what we would say, what I would say, these little L laws, we don't live up to our own standards. We just don't. 
We break our, even our own little laws. He's going to go on and he say, but I'm going to answer that even more explicitly here in a second. Uh, in that they show that the work of the law of Moses written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternatively accusing or defending them. Okay. I forget, it was week nine. Week nine, I just looked this up. So week nine, we actually, did the, I think the title of the sermon was The Little L Law. And because this was the text, this was the passage, same, uh, this is actually a different word. Okay, this is dikaios. Okay, this is, this is the righteousness or the righteous decrees uh, or what they're going to call the ordinance of God. Okay, so it's, it's highlighted in blue, but you can't really see the top word. And although they knew the ordinance of God, all right, it's a different word. The apostle Paul clearly could have used nomos, could have said, although they knew the laws of God, big L or even how we would use little L, although they knew them, they don't do them. But he doesn't. He uses a different word here saying the righteous decrees of God, the ordinances of God, that is the little L, God, little L law, right? It's not even the word nomos, right? It's just to say, God gives us a law. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's big L law. Little L law then is all the ways that we do that. Practically speaking, lusting, pornography, right? That's that little L law. The nowhere in the big L law does it say, don't look up pornography on your computer. It doesn't do that. That's big L law. The little L law are the things that we do and we put upon ourselves that we know is wrong. And although we knew the ordinances of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do... There we go. Okay, look at that. All right, thanks, Paul. Okay, uh, here we are. So that, that's, that when we say the little L law, Paul uses a, a different word for that, actually, not, not just nomos. So, but, he, but he does in, in context. In context, we can see that sometimes, even when our, when our English translators use that little L law, they become a law unto themselves, right? That we, in the context, we can go, oh yeah, that's not the law of Moses. It's, it's something else. It's something else going on in us that we are choosing, okay? Uh, that we know. All right, the, uh, Douglas Moo, let me read this quote and then we will just have a short little application if we can this morning. Uh, Doug Moo in his, uh, uh, the Maximus Moo, his uh, big commentary on, on Romans says this. Towards this, end, toward this end, Paul notes that those who engage in the activities, this is just from the verse I just read, has listed, uh, know that what they are doing is wrong. They act knowing the righteous decree of God that those who do such things are worthy of death. Righteous decree translates, uh, translates a word that Paul uses several other times in Romans. The closest parallel being in 8.4, where Paul speaks of the righteous decree of the law that believers fulfill by the Spirit. The lack of the reference here to the law is significant. Paul speaks of what all people, whether blessed with the special revelation or not, can know of God's just judgment. Death denotes here a divinely imposed punishment and reminds us, as does the earlier part of this passage in Genesis chapter three. So Douglas Moo, and I think to, to try to answer the question, again, this is not fair, uh, because the person who, who asked the question, if they disagree, it's not like, hey, you come preach for the next 45 minutes and teach us about it, right? So I get that. Um, I just want to help maybe give a little bit of clarity on that. And going forward in the next couple of weeks, we'll check our work in that sense. What do we mean by this law? How do we uphold the law, right? So um, based on that, on this little L law, this idea of that, that we know the commands of God, we know the oracles of God, even though we don't even necessarily, but now we have it, we have the oracles of God, right? We have the big L law of God, but we, we have these demands, these little L laws that we put on ourselves all the time. And we, we need to repent of our hypocrisy, of our double standards. Uh, as a parent, it's so easy to, to judge my wife in the way that she might discipline a kid and then, I go way worse, you know, the next time. It's just, it's just how we live. We need to repent of that. We need to repent of our laws that make us feel insignificant or small. I'm not as good as that person. I'm not as pretty as that person. I'm not as athletic as that person. I'm not as good as with college math uh, as that person is. We gotta need to repent of that. It's just not the gospel. Husbands, we need to stop comparing ourselves to other husbands. And what we should do is look to Jesus the perfect husband, 
and go, yeah, I can't do that. But man, I'm gonna strive after Jesus. And when I do fall flat in my face, I know that he's gonna pick me back up. Same with, with wives looking to Jesus. Your husband is a horrible savior. Jesus is the only one who can save. And to singles, same way, man, if I just had what that person has, these people, if I just had that person as a spouse, these are little L laws that we put on ourselves all the time. And families, there was a thing, and my wife and I, we talk about this all the time. Our house is just a constant state of chaos, right? There's just toys everywhere. And there was a while back, we're on TikToks where um, some, some moms would be like, hey, so this is the new thing I got to organize all the toys. So it's always clean in here. And then as they pan and turn to go to the next room, the one room in between is just trashed, right? And it's just, it's just a joke of like, you just can't keep up with the Joneses on this, right? It's just part of life. But we compare ourselves and we put that law on ourselves. So in application, again, this was kind of a weird sermon. I understand that. In application, we need Jesus. I don't care if this is the first time hearing about the gospel of Jesus. I don't care if this is your millionth time of hearing about the gospel of Jesus. We need the gospel. For our inability to obey the law of God, we fall short of that ability to obey the law of God, but he obeys it perfectly. And even the laws that we put on ourselves and the laws that we put on others, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. Let me pray. And then we're going to take communion Again, we do this every week. And as I read in, in Hebrews chapter 10 and other passages, that we get to take these elements to remember the finished work of Jesus. We take the wafer that represents the body of Christ that was broken for us. We take the juice that represents his blood that was shed for us once for all, finished at the foot of the cross. And we now get to partake of that viscerally taste and remember and see that he's good, not just alone. It's, it's a personal relationship with Jesus, but it's never meant to be private. We get to take this meal and remember with our brothers and sisters in Christ who Jesus is and what he did for us. You don't need to be a member of this church or any church. All I would ask is that you're a follower of Jesus. And if you say, yes, Jesus is my King and I love his gospel, I need Jesus, then I would love for you to take these elements with us this morning. And look forward to next week when we check the work to see does the Old Testament really teach us by David and Abraham of the gospel of Jesus Christ by faith alone. Let me pray and the worship team will play a couple songs. So feel free to grab these elements as you see fit and pray, repent, confess and worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that as we read these texts, that we read three chapters of the book of Romans today, um, that it's not in vain. That your scriptures tell us that your word will never return void. That there is always something that happens by seeing your scriptures, by hearing the teaching and reading of your word. And so God, would we just make much of you? Would we make much of Jesus today? Uh, would, we, would we know that we fall short of your glory because we can't obey the law? Whether it's the law of Moses or the law that we even give ourselves. We just can't do it. But Jesus did. And so we get to remember now what he did for us. As he took that bread and broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take, eat in remembrance of me in this, this cup, this fruit of the vine that represents my blood that was shed for you to be a propitiation, to be a payment for the wrath of God. Would we remember now that together? We love you. And it's the name of your son, Jesus, that we pray these things. Amen.